Hello everybody, you are listening to the podcast Ukraine Decoded. I am Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran, I organize expert discussions about the Russian war against Ukraine. My guest today is Vladislav Davidzon, a writer, translator and critic. He was born in the Soviet Union. In the 90s, as a kid with his family, he immigrated to America and was raised in New York City. Currently, he lives in Paris and is a European cultural correspondent of the Tablet, a Jewish magazine. He's also a fellow with the Atlantic Council, an American think tank. Vladislav has a strong connection to Ukraine. He spent three years in Odessa City and published his own magazine called The Odessa Review. Welcome to my podcast, Vladislav. Hello, and thank you for having me on. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, which is why I'm uh, very glad to have an opportunity to engage in conversation with you and dialogue with you. You're you're a gentleman, a scholar, and a, and a former warrior. You were in uh, Ukraine's capital, Kiev, on the very day when Russia launched the war a year ago. For ordinary Ukrainians, that moment was awful. They expected an attack on their country and felt threatened. At the same time, reporters from around the world flooded Ukraine, also expecting to cover the Putin's invasion. And you were one of them. So I was waiting, as were many other journalists and writers, for the war to start. I spent all of January and all of February in Ukraine waiting for the war to start. There's this surreal moment in the first week of January, the second week of January, where all the world's press corps and all these journalists who are not usually Ukraine or Russia hands, uh, I'm sitting there with other colleagues and friends in the high-end restaurants and in the cafes and bars of the the five-star hotels, waiting for the war to start. And Kiev fills up with these international journalists parachuting in and stars of international television, people from CNN, people from Fox News. We're all sitting around anxiously waiting for the war to start, having these continuous conversations about whether it will start, what it's going to happen, what it's going to mean. It was obvious that something really, really, truly terrible was going to happen. It was a very tense time. I remember it very, very well including the population, which oddly didn't believe that the war was going to happen in Kiev. You know, there was a lot of people who did not prepare themselves for the war at all, even basic preparations like having a medical kit in the bathroom and a couple of extra kilograms of food in the fridge and just stocking up on water. People didn't even make basic preparations for the war. Vladislav, your image is very cosmopolitan. I barely could fit all your achievements, jobs and projects in the podcast introduction. And you are also a big fan of Ukraine, right? First of all, my my ancestors are from Ukraine and from Romanian territory, which is now in the contemporary Ukrainian state. I have relatives who are from other parts of the Soviet Union, and my family were typical of of Jews, Soviet people and pre-Soviet Russian imperial subjects who moved around. Uh, One grandfather was from Belarus, two grandparents from Ukraine, and one Russian grandmother. I have a Russian grandmother who was uh, of Mordvinstak. She was born in Batumi. So my family were just moving around continuously. Uh, They were apparatchiks, they were scientists, they were in the services. Large swaths of my family were in the nomenclatura. I have a very complex family background, but, you know, it is true that I am a cosmopolitan. 
I am deeply connected to uh, that part of the world. I'm deeply connected to the lands of my ancestors. And even though I grew up in America, I grew up in the diaspora, I guess something never quite clicked. And I always was really keen to go back. I studied Russian literature and intellectual history university. I always knew that I'd go back. And in my early 20s, I moved to France to study. And I, I just happened to meet a Ukrainian Jewish girl from Odessa in France and Paris. And I returned with her in 2010 to Ukraine, and I started living in Ukraine. We started spending the summers there. We uh, we had an apartment there. I, we, would, we would commute between Ukraine and France. And when the Maidan took place, I didn't get a chance to go to the majority of the Maidan because of family situations. I missed most of the Maidan. A few years ago, you published the Odessa Review magazine about literature and art. At that time, I have already moved to America, but I monitored what was going on in my former homeland, and your magazine was how I discovered you. Do you continue this media project? So my wife and I founded a, a literary journal. It was really wonderful, and it lasted four years. It just so happened that I was running an English-language television station. Ukraine Today was a funny little project, and it collapsed because of bad decisions. I was working for U- Ukraine Today in 2014 when Kolomoisky was still a hero as opposed to a bad boy enemy of the state. And my wife and I were running Ukraine Today in Paris in 2015, going back and forth between Ukraine and France. You know, at a certain point, Ukraine Today as a project ended. And we fought in 2015, we have to do something else. And uh, it's a remarkable time, culturally generative, we have to start something else. We began this literary journal in the summer, autumn of 2015, and we moved to Ukraine permanently for three years to run it. It lasted four years and 13 issues. It was a quarterly. It was a wonderful project. It retired in 2019. We're, we're continuously talking about restarting it and or starting a new kind of Ukrainian literary journal. The cultural stuff, which is tremendously interesting and generative, still underreported about. And we, we we kept it going for four years. Obviously, print-bound literary journal with Timothy Schneider writing for it is an extraordinarily expensive hobby. And it just economically, we never made it work. I'd like to tell you how I discovered you for the second time. It was last year in America. I went to the bookstore in one wealthy neighborhood in Cleveland, Ohio, and saw your book from Odessa with love. Why did you write it? So my book is a combination of my best writings from 2014-15 to 2021. It was 10 years of work plus new writings. It was a compendium of what I'd been working on. It was a love letter to Odessa, literally. It was kind of espionage thriller in the sense that Ukraine became the center of American politics, sadly, way before all this happened on February 24th. Ukraine was a very important part of uh, Russiagate. And in order to understand what happened to America, what happened to uh, American politics, what happened with Mueller and Donald Trump and Giuliani and Sakharov, and all these colorful characters, one had to understand the Odessa story as part of the Ukraine story, right? And that was what the book was about. It also, in retrospect, I only understood it after I published it, it was introduction to the run-up to the war. It is a compendium of cultural events, as opposed to political events. I write about politics through the lens of culture that one needs to understand 
in order to understand what this war is really about, what the deep history of the war was, what the cultural antecedents were, what the cultural processes were that led to this conflict, and why, in some sense, it was inevitable that there would be a denouement of this big story between the Russians and the Ukrainians, between Putin and the West, and why Ukraine is so deeply important. This is something that I understood very, very, very well as a Ukrainian Jew, as a Russian. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a Russian citizen, but I burned my Russian passport. My, my wife asked me to do it on the morning of February 25th. She called me in Kiev weeping from Paris, and she asked me to burn my passport. I was happy to do it. And it was the first thing I did when I get back to Paris with my uh, in-laws and other members of my family, refugees in tow, was burn my Russian passport. But the book is basically a run-up to the war. The war is now the biggest story of our time. But Ukraine was the biggest story of our time, even before lots of people understood that, before February 24th. So what? that's what the book's about. It's 10 years of my life as an insider-outsider observing Ukraine as a patriot, is deeply enamored of what's going on and, and thinks it's, it's the most interesting place in Europe by far. Let me ask your opinion as an art critic about the latest Oscar ceremony. There were two movies associated with Ukraine. One wasn't shortlisted by the Academy experts, but the other one, a war documentary The House of Splinters, in co-production with Denmark and Sweden, had a chance to win. Instead, the documentary from Russia about the opposition leader Alexei Navalny won the prize. At the same time, the Ukrainian president was not allowed to address the Oscar ceremony, because the organizer said that the Oscar is not political. First of all, the Oscars are both incredibly political and apolitical in the kind of most uh, frivolous way at the exact same time. That's one thing. Two, there was the second time that uh, the Oscars had snubbed President Zelensky, right? As opposed to Cannes, as opposed to the Berlin Film Festival, as opposed to other film festivals, as opposed to Venice, as opposed to various other international cultural and film events. The Oscars were not our friends. And Sean Penn, obviously, we'll get back to Sean Penn. He just made a wonderful Zelensky film. In fact, I was a producer on that film. He was criticizing the Oscars already a year ago for not standing up for the Ukrainians. And he's, he's really a great fellow on, on this question. Third point I would make is that the Ukraine fatigue is creeping in and it's starting for, in a way, giving the Navalny film the prize is a backhanded pro-Ukrainian statement, obviously. It's a little ham-fisted. Certainly, it's not what I would do, it's not dissimilar from the way that the Nobel Prize was given to Russian and Ukrainian and Belarusian activists at once. In a way, this is a liberal and anti-authoritarian and pro-Ukrainian move. In another way, it is not dissimilar from all sorts of other well-meaning but ham-handed symbolic gestures. Fifth last point, I'm against giving out prizes based on the correct politics. I'm very much of the thinking that you shouldn't be giving out film prizes based on politics. There's already far too much of that in the world. There's far too much identity politics. It would be nicer for me as a Ukrainian patriot that if the Ukrainian film would have gotten it. But but certainly I, I was not the one giving out those prizes and I wasn't on the committee. You know, all those things you have to keep in mind at once, right? And the uh, important thing to be is intelligent. And who was it that said that intelligent person can keep two or even three contradictory ideas in his head at once? My next question is about another film, 
I am talking about the new superpower documentary filmed in war-torn Ukraine by the American actor and producer Sean Penn. You were helping him, right? So I was a producer on the film. I'm also in the film as a talking head, and I'm in a couple of the scenes traveling with Sean Penn. I also translated for him, interpreted for him with his meetings. I brought together some journalists. There's an amazing scene. It was the evening of the 22nd. We all had dinner. M- myself, Sean Penn, uh, Natalia Gumenyuk, the Ukrainian journalist, Alan Cullison of the Wall Street Journal, and Mr. Peterson, who is a, a lovely American journalist. Yeah, he's, he's great. I set up that dinner for Sean Penn, and that's in the movie. It was a wonderful dinner. We were all uh, arguing about the war. It was a really compelling argument, and it really comes through as a compelling scene in the film where the four of us are arguing about whether the war is going to happen or not, whether there's going to be Russian troops in the streets of Kiev. And Sean was just really gung-ho on Ukraine. He really figured the story out early, and he was just in the right place at the right time filming. He made a really wonderful film. It was a great privilege to take part in it. Vladislav, what is your opinion about Ukrainian President Zelensky and his legacy? He's from show business, he was a movie actor, and maybe you see in him what others don't. Uh, the legacy question, let's begin with the fact that he's obviously done remarkably well and he became a remarkable wartime president. And it's indeed a great deal due to his skills that the world rallied to Ukraine in the beginning. I think he's done his part historically. I hope he gets his Nobel Prize and he wins and all this. But if something were to happen to him tomorrow, it's no longer a personalistic situation. The Ukrainian state will survive. But in the beginning, the fact that he made the right decisions and the, the fact that he rallied the troops and rallied the country, it gave the country really month, two, three months in the beginning that it really needed when it was really 50-50. Ukraine really could have lost. The Russians really could have won the war. They got very unlucky, but uh, and the Ukrainians got lucky. Maybe God really is on the side of the Ukrainians, if one believes in that sort of thing. He did his part and probably much better that he was the wartime president, not Poroshenko, but maybe Poroshenko would have been better at the military stuff in the early days of the war. It's incredibly important that he's a Russian speaker, that he's young, that he's the first member of the Maidan generation who is president, that he's from an ethnic minority, he's from a Russian-speaking part of the country. All these things ensured that it would be a civic national coming together as opposed to a jingoistic ethnic national coming together for the country. Ukraine has always oscillated between the civic and the ethnic national constructions of what Ukraine is. It could have gone in either direction. The fact that he and his people are uh, the wartime concierge, this is the reason that the country has survived. I am absolutely sure of that. It's not just the things that he did, although he did very well, well, maybe not as well preparing the country for war, but we'll have that conversation afterwards. But he did tremendously well, and he represented all the correct things, as in youth, as in a Western orientation. The very fact that he didn't want this war and that he had tried so long to just kind of get along and be a a post-Soviet president who didn't want to make a lot of the cultural decisions. He just didn't really want temperamentally to go in the direction of making particular decisions about what the new Ukrainian national consensus would be. Those things make him even more legitimate as a wartime president, right? It's not just the things that he did. 80% of it is what he is and what he represents without even uh, doing particular things. 
It's not a secret that the skills of public speaking and acting helped Zelensky to be persuasive in his talks with leaders of the Western countries, including the United States and Israel. In comparison to America, Israel was reluctant to support Ukraine actively from the start of the war, so Zelensky had to be very direct and even very undiplomatic. Oh, yes. Look, there's, again, let's unpack all that. There's so many important, interesting things to uh, to talk about. One, the fact that he's of Jewish background is very important. It gave him, it first of all, gave the country a, a kind of argument of ridicule against the Russian arguments of denazification. That was very important. There are a lot of people in the West who don't understand Ukrainian internal politics. There are a lot of people who live in an old-fashioned frame, lens, of Ukrainian politics and Ukraine having to do with World War II. The specter of World War II is obviously something that Putin continuously thinks about. He's a child of World War II, and he's the last Soviet leader of that age of the Russian Federation, of the Russian Empire, whatever you want to call it. And so the World War II politics is incredibly important to him, and the symbolism of World War II politics is very important. The fact that you have this secular Jew who's a Russian speaker, you know, it just diffuses a lot of arguments, and it helped Ukraine diffuse a lot of arguments on the far right and the far left throughout the world. It's very important that he's from an ethnic minority, but he's a Jew, and he leaned into his Jewish identity during the war. The one time I had dinner with him, I asked about him being a Ukrainian Jew, and he, he just kind of waffled. He didn't really think about it. He's not actually Jewish. He's a Ukrainian gentleman of Jewish descent. I am a Jewish Ukrainian gentleman of Mordvin and Russian descent, but I'm neither a Mordvin nor, nor an ethnic Russian. I have Mordvin and Russian blood, but I am a Ukrainian Jew and with an American passport. In that same way, Zelensky is a Ukrainian who happens to be of Jewish descent. So he didn't really think of himself in any appreciable way as a Jew. He doesn't really have Jewish culture, identity, or association. It was something for him that is just kind of a historical fact, the same way that I have a, a Russian grandmother with Mordvin blood, right? It's the same kind of thing. He's a post-Soviet person who had to lean into his Ukrainian identity during the war and because of the war. So ironically, the war made him both a Jew and a Ukrainian out of a Russian-speaking post-Soviet person with a fuzzy identity. That's very important. He was able to mobilize this identity in his completely correct, well, completely correct and completely understandable comments towards the Israeli Knesset. He needed to shame the Israelis, and there's nothing they can do when a Ukrainian president who is a Jewish gentleman with a Jewish minister of defense and a chief of staff who has a Jewish father says to them, Israel's not doing enough to help us, and that we are the same, the Jews and the Ukrainians. We're two very old nations who have lived without a political nation for a long time. There's nothing that the Knesset or Israel can say when a gentleman like that makes those sorts of demands on them, and correctly so. So he leaned into his identity for the sake of Ukraine, which I think is fascinating, isn't it? Let me change gears. In March 2022, basically a year ago, you burned your Russian passport in front of the Russian embassy in Paris. It was a powerful protest against the Russian war. Now, what do you think about those Russian citizens who don't protest the war but ask the United States for an asylum because they feel threatened by Putin, who is conscripting them to the war? Recently, three Russian citizens who asked for an asylum on this basis were ordered by the court to be deported from the U.S. Your opinion? Look, it's a very interesting and important case. 
I myself was a political asylee as a kid. I came to America as a refugee. I've been a refugee in my life. I also have a master's degree in human rights law. As an American citizen, it's important that we have proper asylum regime on the Mexican border. It's a major problem for America. I am very much of the opinion that Russians should not be given political asylum for conscription. We don't give other people a political asylum just because they look like us, like the majority of Americans, doesn't mean they should have more rights than a Mexican or a Honduran or an Ecuadorian or a Colombian on the Mexican-American border. Now, if we're going to have a very stringent regime of asylum, we should be giving it to people who are real asylum cases. Now, if they are political cases or if they are gay, or if they are Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, they deserve asylum rights. They are evangelical Christians who are being repressed, gay, who are being repressed by the Russians. They are politicians who fled Russia because of their political perspective or their political positions. They deserve to be given asylum status in the United States. If they're just random Russian men who don't want to fight the Ukrainian army, please don't fight the Ukrainian army, I beg you, clearly. But you don't deserve to be granted a chance to live in a country like America just because you don't want to fight. That, to me, seems ludicrous that a Ukrainian man can't go to America, but a Russian man can just see because he got out to the Mexican border. Now, sending them back to Russia is also improper, and they should be delivered back to the Mexican authorities and allowed to file a claim in Mexico, right? It seems to be the case that you could just stay in Mexico. I'm not very sympathetic to the Russians as an American citizen who thinks we shouldn't be racist to Hondurans and Ecuadorans. Vladislav, what will Ukraine be in the future after the war? What cultural and art shifts do you see? Obviously, Ukraine will be radically different in every way. If we're talking about culture with a, with a big C, Uh, whether it's going to be completely Ukrainian-speaking and uh, English as a second language in one or two generations is an open question. Probably little Ukrainians won't be able to write in Russian in one generation, and they will not be able to read in Russian in two generations, and they won't be able to speak in Russian in three generations. It, it seems to be the decline of Russian as an imperial language, which has been an Eastern European and Central European trend for 30 years has been driven to hyperdrive or put into hyperspeed by Putin's historic and hysterical gambit, right? He's done as much to get rid of the vestiges of Russian culture and post-Soviet culture in Ukraine as anybody. I'm not the first one to say that. In terms of decolonization, this is certainly a last gasp of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Empire in Ukraine. Certainly, a lot more trauma and a lot more damage will be done to Ukraine before all this is over, but there's no way that they can win or destroy the Ukrainian state, right? Sooner rather than later, certainly in the long term, by the long term, I mean 20 years, Ukraine will win and Russia will lose. Whether Ukraine will lose another 5-10 million citizens to death, uh, expropriation, and refugee status in the West is another question. What its final boundaries will be is another question. Whether it will be a platform for all the liberals and all the Democrats and all the people that don't want to live under autocracies in the post-Soviet world is also another question. Whether it becomes a hipster capital of the Western world as Prague was after 1991 or Berlin was after 1991 is, a, is yet another question. I believe the answer is yes to both those questions, by the way. 
But the civic political culture of Ukraine has already almost arrived. It just needs to be universalized amongst the population. So whereas after the Maidan, let's say 5 to 10 to 15 percent of a population partook in that bilingual post-Soviet new and old culture at the same time. And it was something that the intelligentsia and the elites and the middle classes, especially in the south where I'm from, from Odessa, partook in. It will now be spread to larger and larger swaths of the population. The new Ukrainian contemporary culture will be universalized to all Ukrainian citizens within 10 to 20 years. There's still a lot of people in Ukraine who are basically homo Sovieticus, who are old, who are Soviet citizens, who are Soviet people who still think of a different way. There are still people who are, let's say, Russians who carry Ukrainian passports, right, in the East especially. There are still people who are not ethnically integrated or socially integrated into the new Ukraine. But that will not be the case in 20 years. It will be a coherent country in terms of its political national identity. There will not be anywhere near enough people in the country who are not considering themselves Ukrainians in order to have separatism or anything like that. I'm sure of that. Whether the new culture will be completely Ukrainian-Ukrainian or will be a medley of all sorts of things, whether European or pan-European or post-Soviet, that remains to be seen the way all the ingredients in the soup will congeal. It will congeal and there will be something new. And it's remarkably difficult in this moment when the war is not yet over to make predictions about what that's going to look like. But there will be a coherent Ukrainian political, social, et cetera, et cetera, culture, right? Whether we speak about the artifacts, the actual literature, the painting, that was already extraordinarily interesting over the last five, six years. And that was what the Maidan produced even before it produced measurable outcomes in terms of decarpetization or decolonization. That was already there. And it's certainly going to be the most interesting country in Europe for the next decade or two. I guess, Vladislav, this war of Russia against Ukraine is an attack of evil against good people. Ukrainians fight for good, and this is inspiring. And I can only imagine how inspiring would be the pieces of art and literature created by them in the future. They will definitely include messages, images, and stories of fighting for good. I agree. Look, Ukraine has many things going for it that other countries do not. It's going through the post-Soviet transition at this point in a more healthy way than the Poles or the Hungarians arguably are going through. Lustration failed in Poland. We'll see how we do with that in Ukraine. The other Eastern Europeans, they didn't all do very well in, in certain things. Certainly, Ukraine is less racist than other Eastern European countries. The fact that there's so many different minorities and ethnicities and religions and subgroups in Ukraine is a tremendous strength. And it's also kept the country from going down the path of using ethnic politics as a divisive trope, right? The Ukrainian case, it's the opposite of that which is why we've all come together and why it's so inspiring to the rest of the world, right? Ukraine is very healthy. It has a lot going for it. It's much more healthy in some ways than Western Europe. It's not decadent. It, you know, it still has martial virtues, has really bad birth rates and has a lot of problems, true. But the country and the political nation will survive, which wasn't apparent that it would on February 24th. On this positive note, I'm ending this episode of the podcast Ukraine Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. I am a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran living in America. And my guest today was Vladislav Davidson, a writer, translator and art critic from France. 
He is a European correspondent of the tablet, a magazine of Jewish news, ideas and culture. Vladislav, thank you for coming over. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your great work. I've been an admirer for a very long time. Dear listeners, I am grateful that you listen to my podcast and you can support it by donating to my PayPal. In the description you can find how to do it. I say goodbye till the next episode. So long. <music>